So I told my surgeon and the plastic surgeon that I'd consulted with that I will keep coming back to you until you remove this for me because it's just what I want. And so intertwined in all of this, my message to people would be like self-advocacy is so very important. If I hadn't advocated for myself throughout this, I don't know where I would be. Welcome to This is Perimenopause, the podcast where we delve into the transformative journey of perimenopause and beyond. I'm one of your hosts, Mikkel. And I'm your other host, Michelle. And together, along with about a billion other people on this planet, we're embarking on this milestone of life. We personally struggled for years with perimenopause symptoms, and it took us a while to figure out what was happening. Even now, there are some days that are still a struggle. We know firsthand how confusing, overwhelming, and downright scary this phase of life can be. So we're on a mission to help others be better informed than we were when we started our journeys. Our podcast is a blend of health, education, mindset, and personal growth. We're sharing real-life stories and expert advice to help you navigate this journey and advocate for your best health. Because this stage in our life is an incredible opportunity. We used to think menopause signaled an end, but really, it's just the beginning. This podcast is for general information only. It's designed to educate, inspire, and support you on your personal journey through perimenopause. The information and opinions on this podcast are not intended to be a substitution for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. The information on this podcast does not replace professional healthcare advice. The use of the information discussed is at the sole discretion of the listener. If you are suffering from symptoms or have questions, please consult a qualified healthcare practitioner. Hi, Kate. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. I'm Mikkel. Michelle. Hi. Before we get to your story, maybe we'll just talk a little bit about how you're here. So Ellen Winters-Robinson introduced us. Yes. Um, we know her through the Accelerator Center. She's one of our mentors for This is Perimenopause. Maybe you could tell us about how you know or met Ellen. So I've never met Ellen in real life, but I hope to at some point. Um, so there is a breast cancer support network on Facebook for women and on specifically for women in Ontario. And then I think the offshoot of that is a Waterloo region page. So that's how I connected with Ellen. Okay, fantastic. Well, we're, uh, we're so glad you did. Uh, she's a force. I suspect we're going to discover the same, uh, the same about you. <laughs> Thank you. You're going to dazzle. I think it's going to be a really incredible interview. So thank you again. So jumping in, uh, we're going to start with the really basics. If you could tell us a little bit about your story. So in the summer of 2020, I started to feel like something was maybe wrong. And one of my breasts felt a little lumpier than normal. And I asked my doctor to be seen if I could have a mammogram. And she said, I'm sure it's nothing. You're too young. And I said, well, yes, but can, can I, can I please have a mammogram? So thankfully I have a really good relationship with my family doctor and she did request a mammogram. So I went to uh, true North imaging and had my first ever mammogram and ultrasound on both of my breasts. And how old were you? I was 42. Okay. 
And it came back uh, that I had very cystic, complicated breasts, but there was a fibroadenoma, which is a benign cyst and follow up in six months. And I just said to my doctor, like, I really do feel like something is wrong. Can I get a second opinion? And so she referred me to our local um, breast clinic at Freeport. But I had to wait from September until November to get in for screening. I believe that things had slowed down during the pandemic. Um, it's all a little fuzzy in my head because it's such a, a complicated story. Anyway, I went for um, a mammogram there and they only checked my right side because that was the side that had the fibroadenoma. So that was November 16th, 2020. And I got a call from my doctor when I was in a home visit for my job at uh, 10 in the morning. And I knew then that something was wrong because my doctor doesn't work Tuesdays and she also doesn't call me on her days off. Um, so I had to wait until the end of the day to hear back from her. And she told me that it looked like I had cancer and that I needed a biopsy, but she'd get back to me. So I waited from November 17th until December the 2nd to have a biopsy on my right breast and then I waited until December the 10th to learn that I had invasive ductal carcinoma um, and re would require either a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. So there was Christmas in there. And as I said, it was the height of the pandemic. So things were pretty complicated. I went to these appointments by myself. I received my cancer diagnosis over the phone. I had to have further screening because I had extremely dense mm. breast tissue, which I didn't know that breast tissue... Uh, can it impact your risk of having a cancer diagnosis and also make it more difficult to see cancer on imaging. So I had an, an MRI in the middle of the night on December 22nd. It's crazy to me that I remember all these dates, but I do because I can't remember anything most of the time. <laughs> and it showed that I had another area that they couldn't tell what it was. So my, my original tumor was just shot, like it was around one centimeter. But then they found this area that was seven centimeters by two centimeters by one centimeter. And they weren't sure if it was a tumor or if it was wow. this other thing called DCIS, which is a precursor to invasive cancer. So it was decided that I would have a uh, mastectomy. So I had my first mastectomy January 18th, 2021. I was dropped off at the hospital at 630 in the morning. I had my breast amputated and I was picked up again that evening at 6.30. And again, that was alone and the nurses were great, but I don't think that they're a great substitute for someone that you rely on and care about to be with you during those kind of um, major life events. So then I had to wait for some genomic testing and genomic testing is really cool. It's personalized medicine for people with cancer. They take some of your tumor they send it off to California, and then you learn whether or not you would benefit from chemotherapy. And so with that tumor, it was determined that it, the risks did not outweigh the benefits. And I started on hormone therapy, which is for women who've been diagnosed with hormone positive breast cancer, which is my type, which is something I, I mean, I know way more about breast cancer than I ever wanted to. But it is, there are a number of different types of treatment for breast cancers based on your subtype. So my type was hormone positive. So in order to prevent my risk or to keep my risk of recurrence low, I needed to shut down estrogen in my body. And estrogen, as it turns out, is really helpful for people with that hormone until it tries to kill you. I started taking something called tamoxifen. And I also was on an ovarian suppression drug called Zolidex. 
uh, which I had to receive at the hospital by injection every 28 days. So between those two things, I was slammed right into menopause pretty harshly. It was a really hard adjustment. It took me, I would say, a good three months to adjust to those medications. And I had a lot of side effects. And it was difficult because I could never determine what was from what. I do have a question about, were you given, were you told about what was going to happen because of these medications? Yeah. So when you were, when you receive a cancer diagnosis, you got a ton of paperwork and pamphlets about uh, side effects and the different medications that you're going to be on. Um, So I, yeah, I was told, but I think that there should be some different information for younger women who maybe haven't sorted perimenopause or menopause, because I do think it's different. I'd, I'd previously had a hysterectomy and, a, and one of my ovaries removed, but I still had one left and it was clearly pumping out a lot of estrogen. So I'd experienced some symptoms when I had my hysterectomy, but they, qu- they quickly resolved themselves once my ovary um, made itself a new blood supply. So I just think some of the pamphlets that we get they could maybe cater them more to young women who are about to enter, like to be slammed into menopause and not gradually go into menopause like other people do when they're encountering that stage of life. Can I ask you what kind of symptoms did you experience? Uh, Right away, I got hot flashes, night sweats. My sleep was disrupted. My mood was horrid. Uh, I didn't even like myself and I could feel things like I could hear things coming out of my mouth and I'm like, wow, you're being such a bitch, but I couldn't stop it. Yeah. (laughs) Story of my life. Sounds familiar. Those are the ones that were the most pronounced and the most awful for me to deal with. Because of those symptoms, were there any options for you uh, to try to alleviate those or was it because of your diagnosis and your health situation? Was it just a, oh, you've just got to muscle through this? There are some options, but they're quite limited for people who have estrogen positive breast cancer because the things that would help often are contraindicated. So you can't have hormone replacement therapy because that would feed your cancer and that would be too much of a risk. Though I do know other women who are able to have the estriodol, um, can't remember if it's a ring, but inserted into their Mm -hmm. vagina. It just depends on who your oncologist is and, and, um, how they are willing to treat you. My oncologist does not feel that the benefits of that outweigh the risk. So that's not an option for me, but I do know other people find relief that way. There's some thinking that there's, if it's just absorbed vaginally, it doesn't go through your whole system, but I, I'm hoping there'll be some more research done and maybe there'll be more options available. But because of the nature of my cancer, a lot of the um, ways to get relief are just not available to me. So I can use like Replens or a vaginal moisturizer a few days to help with vaginal dryness. And I sort of rebel against that because I don't think I should. I, I don't know if they're swearing on your podcast. You bet. Let it rip. I don't, I don't fucking think I should have to do that at my age. And so I do rebel against some of the things that would help me just because I'm like, fuck this. I hate this. I don't want to do it. So in that way, I'm not really helping myself, but it, it gives me a little bit of ownership over it in a messed up way. I don't really know how to 
describe that. I can, I take Effexor, which is an antidepressant. I take that for my mood. I would hate to see mm-hmm. what an awful monster I would be without it. Um, but it has the fringe benefit of also helping with hot flashes. So I don't get so many of the night sweats anymore, but I do still get many hot flashes throughout the day. But I'd also hate to see what I'd be like if yes. I wasn't taking it. Did it take a bit to find the right antidepressant or was that the first one and it, and it worked well for you? That was the first one and it has worked well. And I think it was prescribed because of the multi-benefits. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a therapeutic dose that is much lower than the one I'm on that's supposed to help with the hot flashes, but I'm on a pretty high dose because of my mood. I'd love to circle back, Kate, if we could, because I know you've been diagnosed with breast cancer twice. So if, um, if you could continue about on your journey, that would be amazing. So I, I was thrust into menopause and I had actually asked, um, prior to my first surgery to have both of my breasts removed because I felt like it was the right thing for me. Something in my gut was like, I think I just felt like I could live better knowing that they were both gone and that my risk was fairly low after that. So I couldn't have that at, um, January, 2021, because at that point they were just doing life and limb surgeries and that was considered prophylactic. So I told my surgeon and the plastic surgeon that I'd consulted with that I will keep coming back to you until you remove this for me, because it's just what I want. And so intertwined in all of this, my message to people would be like self-advocacy is so very important if I hadn't advocated for myself throughout this, I don't know where I would be. Um, so anyway, I kept coming back to them and I was able to have a reconstruction surgery with a prophylactic mastectomy in July, 2021. Uh, it had been canceled once in June because I believe we went into lockdown again. And so I had to wait another month. So I had this major surgery And I went for my follow-up with the plastic surgeon uh, about a week later. And I I went with my mom. It was one of the few appointments that I was able to have somebody with me. And she came in and she said, well, it's a good thing we did this because it turns out you had cancer in your healthy breast as well. Oh, my goodness. I started to cry. And I had just actually, it's funny, we were driving to this appointment and I was saying to my mom, like, can you even imagine if we get there and she says this? And I'm I made a joke that it's just my luck because this is how luck is for me. I don't, I don't really have much luck, but anyway, so it turned out I have an, I had invasive ductal carcinoma in my left breast as well, approximately a centimeter. And then I also had, um, DCIS and LCIS. So lobular carcinoma in situ. So it's, um, before it turns into cancer and ductal carcinoma in situ. So, they were on their way to becoming different cancers as well. But thankfully, thankfully I advocated and was able to catch it, catch it early. And so because they'd already done, the government had already paid for genomic testing on my right side. When they received the referral from my oncologist, they denied uh, the funding for a mama print, which is another genomic testing typically done on older women who are postmenopausal. And it was complicated because I was in menopause, but I was still considered premenopausal woman because of my ovary. So they denied your claim because of your age and because technically you were still premenopausal because there was one ovary left. 
no, because they'd already paid for genomic testing with my first mammogram, they denied it saying, well, we've already done genomic testing. She doesn't qualify. So my oncologist had to go back and say, no, this is a new cancer on the other side. Please approve this. So I had to wait. There was a lot of waiting because you send things, they get rejected. It comes back. She has to send it again, explaining, and it did go through. By the time they got to the point of sending my a little slice of my tumor off to California, when it got to California, it was too small. So they had to send another slice. And so I waited from July until October to find out whether or not I would need chemotherapy. And as you can tell from my short hair, my short curly hair, I did need chemo. And I started chemo in November 2021 and completed in January 2022. And so during that time, I had to go off of tamoxifen, which was the drug that was depriving my body of estrogen while I while I did chemotherapy. So I completed chemo and about six or eight weeks after that, I had to start on tamoxifen again. So it was like starting all over again and it was brutal. And this is in terms of starting all over again from a menopause symptom perspective? It's hard to know because I was having the side effects of chemo. So it's all shit. It just is like different <laughs> levels of shit. Different kind of shit. Yeah. With that Zolodex shot, you have to get every 28 days to keep yourself in menopause, shut your ovaries down. And I thought, well, I only have one ovary left. I don't really need it. I don't want to do these needles every 28 days for the next five years. It just seemed like a lot. Um, so I had a new forectomy in June of 20, 2022. At any point, did someone recommend you get the ufer? Ufrodectomy, or was that your research? Your did I say that right? No, <laughs> that's okay though. Ufrodectomy, ufrodectomy, ufrodectomy. Nobody encouraged me to do that, but when I mentioned it to my oncologist, she didn't discourage me because I'd made all the right decisions for myself leading up to that point. So I think she was like, you know what, this hasn't gone the way anyone anticipated. If you want to do that, like you've got my support, but she didn't say I would recommend that you would do that. Um, there is some thinking that keeping your ovaries around until you're in menopause is a good idea. It's just easier on your bone. It's, I mean, estrogen is helpful, but like I said before, it's helpful until it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it was more about not wanting to go to the hospital, to the cancer center every 28 days, and then over to the injection clinic and take time off work and just get a, like the needle they give you for that is a 16 gauge needle. It's like the biggest thing I've ever seen. It's just not something that I wanted to do. And I felt like removing my ovary would deprive my body of even more estrogen. If there was anything circulating around from that little uh, devil, then with the different types of cancer, people can still go on menopause, even if they don't have um, estrogen positive cancer, like chemo can induce menopause in some people. And it's, it's referred to as chemopause. And so some people will not have a period uh, during chemotherapy and for quite a while after. I think for some people that can be permanent. It all depends on the individual and um, different subtypes and different treatments. That's great information. Thank you. How common is it for, for someone to have cancer in both breasts? I was told 
I believe around less than 2%. Um, wow. Because that was something I was pushing for with the surgeon. And he was like, you know, it's less than 2% of people. And that's fine. But once you fall into that 2%, those statistics don't matter. No kidding. So I told him to stop talking to me about statistics because for me, they didn't mean anything. Wow. Kate, was your cancer genetic? We're not sure. Uh, I have a really, really rampant history of cancer on my dad's side of the family on his mom's side. It turns out that 85% of breast cancer is not genetic. So only 15% is. So 85% of people, it's just bad luck or I mean, I think there's research happening all the time as to how does this happen? Because I think that people get a false sense of security if they don't have a family history, because then they think they're not going to get it. And so maybe they're not as vigilant about self-checks or talking about mammograms with their doctor and so on and so so forth. So because of my age, I did have genetic testing well after my mastectomy. And it turns out that I have two variants of unknown significance on the BRCA2 gene. So maybe in a few years, when I check back with the genetics department, they'll have discovered that 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 variant is significant. But right now, it either is not at all significant, or it is significant, we just don't know. So we don't have enough information. Let's go back to the very beginning for a moment. Were you doing regular self exams, breast exams? Not as often as I should have been, but I just knew from pushing around that something wasn't right. And I would say it was more of a gut feeling for me than it was something palpable because what I felt and where they found the cancer were in different spots. And I believe that I think it was the American Cancer Society took breast self-examination off of their recommendations for people, but I would urge people to continue to do breast self-examination and get to know your body because sometimes that is the thing that helps you get diagnosed, get diagnosed at a earlier stage. Um, there's a really great resource called Know Your Know Your Lemons, and they have pictures of an egg carton, and there's lemons, there's 12 lemons, and it's 12 different signs of breast cancer. And it's a really good visual. And yeah, I would encourage people to do their self-examinations every month at the same time just to get to know your body so you have a baseline. Kate, you mentioned uh, that you have very dense breasts, which I learned recently I do as well. I'm wondering if you can share with us, you know, a little bit more about if you have dense breasts and what that means. So I've had people ask me this question because I talk a lot about it on my Instagram page that I started specifically for my cancer journey or whatever you want to call it. I hate that word, but I did not know how important the knowledge of what your breast density is. And the only way to know your breast density is to have a mammogram. You can't tell by feeling them, looking at them. Size doesn't matter. Like you can have very large breasts and not have dense breast tissue. You can have very small breasts and have dense breast tissue. So the only way to know is by having a mammogram and it will say on your mammogram report. And I know there's an organization called Dense Breast Canada that is advocating for changes in screening um, because dense breast tissue and cancer both show up as white on imaging. And so it can be very hard to detect whether or not you have a tumor hiding in there. And if you have extremely extremely dense breast tissue, it's a mouthful, that's category D and it's recommended. um, They're recommending 
that you get enhanced screening if if that is your breast density. Um, and so thankfully, I had a really good surgeon. And prior to my first mastectomy, he did request an MRI, which is the preferred method of enhanced screening. However, when they did the MRI, they did both my breasts. And for some reason, it was still hiding on the left side. So I can't, uh, for the life of me, figure that out. It's just a good example of how important it is to know your breast density. And um, because even with an MRI, the left side was still missed for me. Right. So we'll put all of these uh, resources you've mentioned in the show notes. But I think the key messaging is if you've got boobs, you need to make sure you're getting a mammogram starting at age 40. If you've got dense boobs, like I do and you did, <laughs> not to be glib, but uh, you need to be getting supplemental screening because the mammogram can't necessarily see what needs to be seen. That's right. Um, and the earlier cancer is found, the better the outcomes and uh, the less um, invasive sometimes the treatments can yeah. be. You might not know the answer to this, Kate, but how easy is it to advocate for the supplemental screening? I, I don't actually know the answer, but I do have a sister. She's a couple years younger than me. And I have asked her, like, once you have a first, it's not first generation, but there's some terminology, like first degree, that's what it is. I just want to say that I was a really high functioning person before all of this. And I feel like menopause and chemo has really impacted the way my brain works. Um, and I know I've done lots of reading about brain fog and stuff and chemo and menopause sort of have the same similar impacts on the brain. So like I often have to stop and, and gather and try to find words and people often help me. So there is the high risk breast screening program in Ontario and you have to meet certain criteria in order to qualify for it. And I've urged my sister to become part of that program. But unfortunately, like her family doctor doesn't seem to understand how to get her into it or that it even exists. So I feel like it's maybe not consistent. I'm not sure that that's a clear answer, but that's about as clear as, as it is. Yeah, I think the point being at 40, get a mammogram however you have to. And if you have a family history, um, keep asking and advocating until someone agrees to give you the screening you need. For sure. And I believe that in Ontario, if you request a mammogram over the age of 40, you shouldn't be denied and regular screening starts at, starts at age 50. Um, but there is advocacy happening to reduce the age of a screening mammogram, which I think is so important. And I have so many friends, they're in their 30s, some of them in their 20s who've been diagnosed with cancer. So I would like to even see it go lower than 40. But at this point, lowering it from 50 to 40 would be an improvement. They have in the US lowered the age from 50 to 40 across the board, and that needs to happen here. My understanding about some of the screening that early isn't appropriate and we don't recommend self exams, breast self exams is because it could cause stress. Well, guess what? <laughs> better the, better to go through that stress of, you know, a scare or over something that is benign than to end up in a situation where had I only done this earlier, it might not be this bad. Well, you know, women and their hysteria, <laughs> they can't handle things like that. So. Well, exactly. Exactly. And I think the medical system has a history of treating women as unable to handle the hard truths or unable to understand the concept of risk and make those decisions for themselves. And it needs to stop. 
And I would argue that most people that I know, if they were to get a false positive, they would be fucking relieved to get that, oh, sorry, we were wrong, over waiting until they are like stage three and wondering if they're going to be able to survive till next Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Kate, I'm cognizant of time and we want to make sure we talk a little bit more about you and your life and your family and what the impacts are of having breast cancer and having children and relationships and work. Tell us about that. So all of it was further complicated by being diagnosed in a global pandemic. Um, I think that my mental health would be a lot, I mean, I don't know if it would be better, but I do think that um, the impact of doing all of that stuff alone definitely impacted my mental health all of it I think has been hardest on my mental health. Like, yes, my body has been through the ringer, but my mental health is the part that has been impacted the most. So I am a kinship worker. I work for family and children's services. And so I left my job in January, 2021, and I'm just about to return next week. Due to the nature of my job, there's no way I could have come and gone throughout all of that. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a job where I could qualify for long-term disability. I could still have my benefits. My spouse has good benefits. I think, I think a lot, um, about people who don't have benefits to pay for the, you know, the medication alone, but not only that, but like I have massage, I have osteo, I have, uh, coverage for counseling. Um, so I've tapped into all of that stuff a lot throughout this process and spent a lot of money out of pocket just trying to get things to make the process more comfortable. Things you don't think about like a recliner so that I could sleep in it after surgeries, special pillows to prop myself up after I couldn't sleep on my side for six weeks. When you're a hardcore side sleeper, sleeping on your back is just really not it. (laughs) It's not awesome. So I left my job for a while and my kids at the time, they were seven and eight and doing school from home. My spouse is a teacher. So everybody was home. And I do worry about the impact on my kids, because I think if they'd been in school, they might have been protected from some of the stuff that they saw from seeing sick mom all the time. So you know, I've lost income, I've lost opportunities through my work. I mean, we didn't have a lot of practical, tangible support, because we couldn't we followed all of the restrictions that were in place. I didn't get to hug my mom till makes me really upset to think about. Um, Like we didn't see our family for Christmas and I didn't get to hug my mom. She isolated for two weeks before she moved in with us after my first mastectomy. She's a a retired nurse. um, And I'm so thankful because you get your boob cut off and they hand you a piece of paper and it's like, good luck. And then you have to go out. You have to go out the next day to a clinic to get your bandages looked at and changed. And like I can tell you, there's no fucking way I wanted to leave my house in the middle of winter. I think the intensity, I, I, I still can't believe it's basically day surgery. Yeah. It's insane. It t- it's totally insane. And the reconstruction, though, I did stay in the hospital for two nights. But the only time I saw someone was when they were coming to give me pills. And one time somebody got me up to go to the bathroom. But those nurses were overworked. But I think that it would have been better for everyone if I could have had somebody stay with me, visit me, 
bring me stuff. Absolutely. I imagine a very isolating experience. And then to be doing this through COVID has to be just that much more difficult. Yeah, it was um, the most difficult. I think I was robbed of a regular cancer experience, which is a weird thing to wish for. (laughs) Let me tell you. (laughs) Some of the most helpful things though, like I have really great work colleagues and friends and they did a meal train for us during my mastectomy, my reconstruction, and then during chemo. And that was some of the most helpful because my spouse didn't take any time off work and he was doing the bulk of stuff at home. So three nights a week, he didn't have to worry about making dinner and we often had leftovers and people bring their A game when they are cooking for you when you are unwell. So we had the best food. That was a really helpful thing. So while we were physically alone, like we had a lot of support that way. And I found, um, like I started my lump into lemonade account in December, 2020. And, and I joked about like, Oh, maybe I'll be the next cancer influencer. Like, Hey guys, didn't realize that there actually are people out there that were, and I didn't know that there was such a vast community on Instagram. And so it was a lifeline for me. I was able to update my family and friends. They could go there, read about me and not, I didn't have to update everybody all the time, but I also connected with women literally all over the world who were going through a breast cancer diagnosis in a global pandemic. So it was an immense source of support. And I still am very, actually, I don't think I've posted anything on my regular Instagram account since I opened up my Lump into Lemonade one. I've checked out your Instagram account, Lump into Lemonade. It's amazing. What was that like from your first post? What was that experience like? Um, Well, when I made my first post, I was in like sheer panic mode. And um, I kind of felt like, I don't know if I should do this. Um, So when I first did my first post, I kept my privacy settings up and I only told my family and friends because we hadn't yet told the kids. They still didn't know I had cancer. We waited to tell them until after Christmas, but actually it came out during Christmas dinner because one of them had heard me crying. So it's just the five of us. And they were like, oh yeah, well, did you hear about mom's cancer? And I was like, oh, I guess we're going to have this conversation now. So I had started it as a way, as I said, to update my family and friends, but it was also a way for me to get the angstiness that I was feeling out of myself and on paper, because I've maintained throughout this whole process that the waiting is the most hellish part of anything. Once you know what you're dealing with and have a plan, like everything feels better. Everything feels better with a plan. So once the kids knew, I kind of took off my privacy settings. Like I think right now I have something like 1,200 followers. And some of those people are my friends and family. But a lot of them, the majority of them are other people, other people, women, you know, other young people who've had cancer or other women who've had cancer. And I have met some of them in real life, which has been a really cool experience. And I have a, like a core group of about eight. There's eight of us, I think. And we all range in age from, well, I'm the oldest. So I'm 45 now. And I think, I think we're like 35 to 45 and they are like my core group of, of friends. And we all went through this around the same time in history and um, we're kind of all at the same stage of life. So that has been uh, super special and, 
I don't know what I'm going to do with that account now that I'm post-cancer and treatment. I mean, I think once you've been diagnosed and gone through something like that, you're never, it's never too far from, I mean, there's not a day or a moment that that goes by where I'm not thinking. I'm hoping that the further I get away from it, the less intense it feels. Um, But I plan to do some advocacy, probably with the Canadian Cancer Society, and I don't know what else. Um, So maybe my account will will shape shift and become more about like information. But if you go and look at my account, like some of it's funny, some of it's serious, some of it is very evident of what I was going through at that time, because I'm just like, fuck this and fuck that and why me? And sometimes I think I should go back and edit that stuff. But then I think, well, no, like that, that's a a perfect capture of what was happening at that time in my life. And so maybe someday when I'm not here and my kids are older, maybe it'll be something that they can look at and see my point of view of what was happening. Cause I know they have their own experience of what happened and right now is not appropriate for them to know how it happened from my point of view, but when they're adults, maybe they'll be curious. I have a few questions around just family and your kids. And if, if you'd rather not answer, I completely understand. I think you can get the picture that I'm a pretty open book. I was just going to say you're so beautiful and raw and authentic. And I think that's so important to share with the world. Maybe let's start with your kids. Do you, how do you, how do you go about telling your kids about something like this? Or do you have advice for other people who might be listening, who are in a similar boat where they've got to tell their kids some really tough, scary shit? Well, the way, the way it happened for my family was not ideal, but like the social worker in me would say to tell them what you know and answer their questions as they come up, but don't overload them with information. There's lots of really helpful books out there. A friend of mine who I did yoga with, she'd had a diagnosis, I think a year before me. And so she lent me a book, it's called Cancer Hates Kisses. And it's a really good book for kids who are around my kids' age, like maybe like four to eight. And so it talked about like all the things that cancer can and can't do. And it talks about your mom being sick, but cancer hates kisses. So make sure you kiss your mom a lot, basically. Yeah, they did really well with knowing what was coming. So mom's going to have a surgery. Her boob is going to be removed. Well, where does your boob go? Like, (laughs) I don't know. But we did wait until we had some information to tell them because if we told them sooner, I think it would have been anxiety producing for them because we had no answers for anything. So I don't think it's helpful to withhold information and be accused of lying to them. But kids only need a little bit of information and then they're generally satisfied. Right. And um, I think I made the mistake of crying one time to my daughter. And then after that, she wouldn't talk to me about cancer because she was worried about making me cry. But she did talk to my mom, and so I. it was good for me to know that she had somebody that she would talk to. My stepson, who's the younger one, he struggled more than she did during the diagnosis and kind of waiting period. So for my first surgery, I, I went and got them these little, like, crystals. And I just said, like, keep this if you, if you need to think of me, hold this rock, and um, I'm going to be okay, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday or something like that. So they only need the facts. They don't need all of the other stuff. That's great advice. What about if you're comfortable? I can't imagine how challenging something like this is 
not just for you, but for your relationship and for your spouse? Do you have any advice or was there something in particular that was helpful for you and for your spouse? I mean, we're still feeling the impacts of this. In some ways, this experience made us stronger as a couple. And in other ways, it's really hurt us as a couple. Like our sex life is basically in the shitter. And um, trying to get back to that is hard. And it's part of it is menopause and all the stuff that happens then, like a desert dry vagina and lack of desire and all that stuff. The other part is my breasts were part of our lives and Mm. now they don't work and they don't look too great. So it's a complicated, complicated impact, better in lots of ways, worse in others. We do try to communicate about it, but I think the ball is in my court. And sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just too tired to worry about it. So we both go to counseling separately. Uh, We might need to go to sex therapy at some point. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I do know the statistics on uh, marriages after a cancer diagnosis are not pretty, and I can see why. I think that people, if they've been unhappy, they will be like, they'll blow their life up and try to, try to, you know, my life is too short. I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Or it can have the opposite effect, I think. Thank you so much. I think so many people are going to benefit from hearing what you just said for so many different reasons. So thank you. Um, One last thing, and then I'll stop talking. I feel like when someone is diagnosed with cancer, a lot of people don't really know what to say or what to do. What did you like hearing and what beyond the food, obviously, beyond the gourmet food, obviously, were there anything, was there anything else that was really helpful? Well, first of all, I think saying something is better than saying nothing. Mm. Like even, I don't know what to say, but I want you to know I'm here for you. People do want to help and giving them something practical to do, I find is helpful. Like bringing meals is something you can actually do and and people like helpings. Another thing that I would have found helpful for people who say, you know, I'm here for you. Let me know if you need anything. People are generally not going to tell you what they need. So it's better if you can provide or let them know what you can offer and then maybe let them pick. Um, because the let me know what I can do people, like sometimes I think they really mean it. Other times it's just an, ex- an excuse to be like, okay, well, I've offered and they haven't asked me. So now I don't have to do anything. And money, like nobody wants to ask for money, but anyone going through cancer treatment can benefit from that. Whether they use it to buy a meal, whether they pay for parking, we were limited because of the time this happened. But had this happened now, like somebody to take my kids out and do something fun that I can't do with them or take my spouse out for a beer and chat with him, like that kind of stuff. It's not just the the cancer patient that's going through it. It's the whole family. Yeah. It's great advice. Thank you. Do you want to hear the best gift that I got? Absolutely. So I had um, nicknamed my tumors... Carol Baskins and Joe Exotic because, <laughs> you know, Tiger King was really popular at the time. And this one group of friends, so it's my spouse's group of friends, they knew that we had lots of people offering to bring us food and, and they were thinking like, what's something? So they got me a cameo from Carol Baskins. Nice. And she had no idea that she was actually one of the tumors as well. And so it's even funnier because she talks about 
how genius it was for me to name my tumor Joe Exotic and blah, blah, blah. She made it all about her as she typically does, but I have never laughed so hard in my entire life. It was amazing. That's awesome. Um, I think just again, in lieu of time, we'll probably wrap up. We have uh, two, two more questions really quick. Um, but what is the one thing you would like every woman to know about breast cancer? Get to know your body, get to know what your normal is so that you can feel when something is wrong and also advocate for yourself. You can ask, you can continue to ask, you can be a broken record. And the worst thing that the people out there can say is no. Um, but I would say that you know yourself best and gut instincts are powerful and um, self-advocacy is really where it's at. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and subscribe to our podcast. When you do this, it helps to raise our podcast profile so more women can find us and get a little better understanding of what to expect in perimenopause. We also read all the reviews, the good, the bad, and the ugly to help us continuously improve our show. We would love to hear from you. You can connect with us through the podcast, on social media, or through our website. Our information as well as links and details from our conversation today can be found in the show notes. 